to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, Find Your Voice. This is a podcast where we discuss policy, we discuss issues affecting Goldstein and also Australia and we get down into some of the nitty gritty issues around independence and just what this campaign looks like and what we're hoping to achieve. And my guest today, I'm pleased to say, is Tony Windsor. Now, Tony was a long-term independent MP, first in the New South Wales State Parliament, and was then the member for New England up in northwestern New South Wales for more than 10 years. So he has a lot of experience as an independent politician, and I'm really keen to pick his brain. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, pleasure, Zoe, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. Now, let's just start with some of the structural questions first. And I think maybe the best place to start is why did you decide to be an independent? Well, it's a very long story. Um, I'm an accidental politician in a sense. Uh, I was a card-carrying member of the National Party back in the 1980s. And uh, uh, I was trying to help a friend of mine get elected into federal parliament. And whilst I was on that journey helping him, people kept saying to me, why don't you have a go? So, uh, in the end, I did, and uh, was unsuccessful because I'd been fairly critical of the National Party as a, as a branch member as to where they were going at that particular time. And uh, uh, time went on, I stood for the state seat uh, as an independent as a few years later and uh, was successful. At that time, it was the second safest uh, seat in the state. So uh, I did that for 10 years and then had to go at the federal seat and was in the federal seat for 12 years. Tell me about the role of an independent. It, it struck me over the last few weeks talking to people about what I'm doing that there's perhaps a bit of education that needs to be done around what the function of an independent is. Can you describe the role? Well, I think for, first and foremost, and as our constitution says, uh, I stood for the House of Representatives, you're standing for the House of Representatives. Uh, so. The key thing is to be a representative of the people who you're standing for. And uh, as an independent, uh, I found it gave me enormous freedom in terms of the way I could relate to the people in the electorate. I didn't have to just support those who supported me or uh, supported a, a party doctrine. Uh, I was able to represent all of those people. And I quite enjoyed that role of being their representative. I quite often represented views in the parliament and in letters to ministers, etc., where I personally uh, was in disagreement with those uh, their sentiments. But it wasn't my job to be uh, judge and jury. It was my job to represent. And I, I took that very seriously. So as an independent, you, you've got more of a straight line run at the work in a sense that you can uh, address the issues that are, you know, within your electorate. You can address them both, you know, in the media or uh, in public, uh, forums or uh, uh, in the parliament or by way of uh, ministerial letters or there's a whole range of ways in which you can address those issues and their issues aren't washed by the the political dogma of a political party a lot of the party members you know are quite genuine in terms of what they're trying to achieve 
if they're trying to achieve something that's against what the ministers have been spruiking on about for 10 years, uh, they've got very little chance of getting a, a result for their constituents. So I see the constituent as the, the key to the work and uh, I enjoy the work. And I think if you're going into politics, you've, you've got to enjoy that interaction with people because you, you will have a lot of it uh, in the office and uh, you know, in the parliamentary offices as well. But an independent can establish that direct link with the constituent and the parliament in various shapes and forms. So you just explain, for example, if, it, if you're coming up to a vote on a particular piece of legislation, how the role for you as an independent differed or how the way you would approach that differed to an MP from one of the two major parties? Well, I think in the party rooms, uh, their democratic processes determine how all of their members actually address a particular piece uh, of legislation. So there may well be debates behind closed doors. Uh, as an independent, uh, on, the, on big issues, I used to always refer back to the electorate. And there's ways and means you can do that by uh, direct mailing uh, constituents. If, if there were big uh, social issues or, uh, you know, what do you think about same-sex marriage, uh, climate change, those issues, uh, uh, national broadband, uh, you know, the Gonski reforms and needs-based education, those sorts of issues, I'd go back to the electorate and say, well, this is what's coming up. Uh, what's your view? Uh, euthanasia was a, another one that I remember referring to, uh, back to the constituency. And over time, you build that relationship with people and people take it seriously because it's, it becomes a, a guide not, not the total guide, because there's things that happen on the floor of the parliament where you've got to make, you know, decisions that don't, can't, you just can't go back to your electorate all the time. But, but it, it gives you an, a substantive basis to argue that you're actually arguing for what people in your seat want. And uh, so that, that's what I uh, did mainly. Obviously, there were other pieces of legislation that independents could, in fact, address in the parliament itself. There's the committee processes of which independents are a part of. And during the hung parliament in 2010-13, uh, the committee processes actually changed quite dramatically because one of the things that happens when you've got a majority government, it's, it's ruled from the top. It's ruled from the executive, the prime minister, deputy prime minister, and maybe the treasurer and two or three other people. And then a number of faceless people that, you know, you wouldn't know their names, but it's, it's ruled from that position. In a hung parliament, what it actually does is open the parliament up to all members, all members of parliament, whether they be in the government, or the minority government or in opposition. And that, those numbers reflect themselves back through the committee processes. In a majority mm -hmm. parliament, a House of Reps committee uh, the government of the day will always have the majority so they can determine the outcome. They can go through the process to go out and talk to the people and then come back and do what the minister says. Uh, but in a hung parliament, you can't do that. Uh, and what it, what it did uh, over time, it took people in the parties to wake up to it, a while to wake up to it, but what it did was actually show them that they were empowered in terms of the decision-making process, that they, they could have a say even if they were in opposition, in inverted commas, they could have a say into the substantive committee uh, processes and determine the recommendation. The government so, so of the day couldn't overrule. And one of the issues where I found that uh, to be incredibly powerful was in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin 
arrangements where majority of parliaments for a hundred years had wrestled with that issue. And I'm not saying it's perfect now either, but they'd wrestled with that issue, never been able to deal with the states, never been able to agree at the, at the Commonwealth level. Well, a, a Murray-Darling Basin plan came out of a hung parliament when no one had a majority. So when people say to you, oh, it'll only be chaotic, it'll be this, it'll be that, yeah, it's, it's yeah, unstable, it's, it's all of those things. Uh, in fact, it empowers all members of parliament, whether they be in the government, in the opposition or on the crossbench. Now, as you bring up um, 2010 and the, the Gillard minority government, you know, it takes me to a process of decision-making that you and the other independents had to go through at the beginning to figure out who, who you were going to give confidence and supply to. What was the process that you went through and, and how challenging was that decision-making? Well, essentially, we set up a process uh, where we established some bargaining positions with both sides of Parliament, or talking positions with both sides of Parliament. In that case, it was Tony Abbott and uh, Julia Gillard. But we also wanted to know uh, what the real economic circumstances of the nation was at that particular occasion, because there were various promises, and we see it all the time, where promises are made, or commitments made, uh, uh, that, that really don't show up until after the election campaigns are over. So we wanted to make sure that if we were supporting one side or other, we, we actually knew what the economic timetable was, just where the positions were. So, you know, we had a series of meetings with um, uh, Ken Henry, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, and, and many others. And likewise on the climate change debate, we spoke to a lot of um, experts on, on various, from various perspectives on climate change uh, during that particular period of time. So it did take time. And uh, I remember Oakshot and I in particular, we didn't apologize for that because uh, some people were critical of us saying it took I don't know, 17 days or something. Uh, mm. But the poll wasn't declared until the day after we announced. So mm. it, in a hung parliament, you can't say who's going to govern until the poll is actually declared. People are assuming, as they do, the night they're watching Anthony Graham on television, and by 10 o'clock they want a result. Uh, well, if there's a, a clear majority, you can actually do that. But in a, a situation where uh, determining who actually governs, you can't make a, a snap decision. And it, it, it would be wrong, as some people suggested. I remember I had Alan Jones and others barking down my throat. No, you should tell the people how you're going to, uh, what you're going to do, who you're going to put in the government, all this sort of nonsense. Uh, we took it a bit more seriously on that. We looked at the issues. We worked through those issues. We dealt with both sides on, uh, uh, you know, on, on a fair basis and uh, made a determination uh, yeah. at the end of that. And uh, I thought if I was in that situation again, I'd probably do exactly the same thing. I thought it was a process that, that work pretty well, nothing's perfect. Uh, but, but you don't have to do that. Uh, you know, people will say to you, oh, what are you going to do with... Yes, uh, it sounds very familiar. Power? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> who are you going to put into power? You're, you're going to have the balance of power, aren't you? And you but the likelihood of you having the balance of power is very, uh, very narrow. There may be a number of you, uh, which I personally hope, that have the balance of power one person to make the decision between that side and the other side 
is highly unlikely. Uh, in our case, it was, um, it was two, uh, and it, it may be more than that. So there's other people that, that are going to come into play as to making that sort of decision. Now, you don't know, and I don't know, and neither does the person who's asking you, they don't know who those other people are. So it, it's impossible to say uh, beforehand who you're going to put into power. There's a whole range of other things come into play. What's the Senate look like? Where are these people on the significant issues that I've, that I've spoken out on in terms of the electorate that I've just spent two months uh, electioneering on? In my case, uh, it became uh, pretty clear after about two weeks. I'd stood on climate change in 2010. I'd stood on renewable energy. I'd stood on needs-based education systems. I'd stood on doing something about the Murray-Darling uh, Basin. I'd stood on some of the issues with uh, particularly groundwater and extractive industries and uh, those things. I'd, I'd stood on those issues. And there's other ones that I just can't recall at the moment, but uh, it became very clear during our negotiating phase that really Julia Gillard was the only one that was going to have a good hard look at those issues. Tony Abbott would have promised anything, but he wouldn't have kept the parliament going for more than about six months. That, yeah, that was his So intent. did you get a lot of, did you get a lot of blowback or any blowback from your electorate for your decision, given that, given your background, there was an expectation that you would align yourself with the LNP and you, you chose not to? Oh, there was blowback. But I think during the three years, there was a, there was a lot in the media about how uh, you know, can't walk down the street without being spat on and that sort of thing. All nonsense. I think I had about 13, 13 or 14 people abuse me. Well, I, I probably got that during a normal parliament. So, <laughs> so but there was blowback. Some people really didn't understand the political process, uh, thought, oh, you should have supported the other side. I'd run as an independent for seven elections. Yeah, they had a chance at the at the polling booths to vote for about that other side they talk about. Uh, they voted for me uh, in a in a majority sense, not a, not a minority sense. So, uh, and at one stage I had something like eighty three percent of the primary vote. So they were voting for an independent, not 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 someone else dressed up in in sheep's clothing. But the but the very important fact that I used to say to people in the electorate. If I'd gone for Abbott at that particular time and he ignored those substantive issues, the NBN, all of those issues I just mentioned a moment ago, uh, I, I would have walked away from the things you elected me on. Uh, so you elected me on those issues. I didn't just make them up as I got in front of Abbott and Gillard. You elected. They're the things I ran on. They're the things you voted for in, in quite a substantive way. They, my obligation was to get the best deal on those things that you voted me in on, those substantive issues. And uh, once you explained that to people, they thought, well, well I, I can understand that now. Armadale would never have had the NBN uh, fibre to the home. Now, not many people have in, in, in Australia. Some have, some are lucky. So if Abbott had been put in place, Armadale would never have seen that and most other places wouldn't either. So just that one issue uh, was, he, he was against that. It was for watching Netflix or movies or, you know, it was a rubbish 
issue for him at the time, as was climate change, you know, was, you know the volcanic goat and whatever. And, uh, so, uh, so there was way back to answer your question, but that didn't worry me because I was being true, not only to myself, but very much to the people that elected me. And even that, but some of those people were, were angry that I did what I did. Well, once you explain that I did what they sent me to do, uh, you know, they were more comfortable. I can't say everybody was relaxed, but they were more comfortable. I'm curious, listening to you and having had a conversation with Cathy McGowan about her time as independent Indi, whether or how transferable you think the independent role is between a rural electorate and an, an urban electorate like Goldstein and also several electorates in in Melbourne and Sydney particularly and even Adelaide where independents are running. Do you think that ability to rally a community and, and motivate people to vote independent the way you and Cathy have done is easily transferable to an urban seat? Well I, I don't know all the urban seats. I think it is and in fact if people can't rally that community support, I wouldn't bother standing. The, the great advantage uh, an independent has, and but needs as well, uh, is people on the ground. You, they, you will never have enough money to have compete these people. I stood in 2016 against, uh, I had retired, but I felt strongly enough about climate change and a few other issues. I thought, no, I'll have another go at this fellow in 2016 uh, and lost but we spent something like $750,000 quite a lot of my own money but uh, you know a lot of money that was donated uh, it was close it was tight the, the polls in the last week were, were neck and neck they knew that we knew that and they just bombarded everything in that last week they spent three and a half million over the camp campaign so you'll never compete with them on money uh, that's not saying you don't need money, you do uh, substantive uh, amounts, but you won't win on money alone. Where you can win is through the community. And uh, that's why I always say to people, they ring up and say, well, <clears throat> I wonder how it's independent. I don't, what have I got to do? And I said, well, have you got 50 people that will support you? Well, yes, I'd at least have that. Well, ask them all for $1,000. And then, <laughs> <laughs> then they can pay you over six months. <laughs> then come back. Uh, and when you get that 50 together, ask them, will they all go out and multiply by, uh, you know, a factor of, of 10. Get to 500 uh, and then get to 1,000 and then get to 2,000. Now, some of those people can be outside the electorate too as well. What, you, what you're trying to do is get a power base that that talks not on the press, not in the papers, but, but across the street and in the co coffee shops. And that can apply as much, and in, in fact, more in the city, I think, uh, than in the country where you've, country you've got to communicate with people who, you know, in some cases in my electorate, was 600 kilometers away. Well, mm. you know, the, the physicality issues start to become a, a bit of an issue. But, but the empowerment, and I said to someone the other day, how many supporters have you got? And they, and this particular person thought they had a, a, about 2,000, which is a, a good number. Uh, I said, well, get them all out there and, you know, they all have their T-shirts. So I've noticed your, your people uh, all looks great, all looks great. Uh, 
get them out there, get them campaigning, get them talking to people, uh, get them using this multiplier effect all the time. If, you, if you're one, I want you to, can you get five, five mm. other skins? Can you get people who stand up at the booths with you? Yes, I can do that. Uh, I'll do an hour for you. Can you do two? Mm. I'll do two hours. Can you do four? So <laughs> not only when election day comes, do you have someone at every booth, there's 10, 20 Zoe Daniel people there. Uh, not just one. Some people say, oh, I've covered all the booths. I've got a person for each booth. Well, that's not good enough. You've, you've got to send that message. That, and, the, and, and the enthusiasm of an independent can come through uh, really well as well. Because the party guys, some of them are old and tired like me, but uh, some of them are tired by their party processes. And the election day is a nuisance to them. Um, so I'd try and get that multiplier effect going in terms of the sheer numbers. Now, there's an obligation in terms of on the constituency there too. If the constituency are quite happy with what a mess we're in, well, I vote for her, they normally vote for her. But if, if they're serious about change and doing politics differently, all those things that get talked about, and they're things I believe in, and I've heard you talk about them too. If they're serious about that, they've got to get serious too. Zoe Daniel won't do this on her own. All the other independents, they'll never do it on their own. Uh, they will need people who are prepared to commit time, effort, and in some cases money, but that time and effort uh, is critical. And one other thing that I'd just say, Zoe, too, I'm probably rambling on a bit, but the last week, of the election campaign is absolutely critical. Everybody will be tired. You'll think, oh, I've done everything. I've got my booth workers worked out. I've got all of these things uh, done. It's all, the last week is, is the important week. If you're a threat to the system, there will be this avalanche of cash come into the, system, into the electorate in terms of uh, advertising, paraphernalia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things we used to do was in that last week because you've got this issue of preferences, which always comes up. Who are you going to preference? Uh, what we used to do was have a how to vote card that just says, one Tony, I ask for your vote, and that's all you should decently ask for too. Uh, vote for me, and uh, then allocate your preferences uh, for, uh, for the people that you choose. So it's your choice who your preferences are. Now, some people will say that there's an issue there with uh, informal votes. There's not, if you explain it properly. But the thing we did in that last week, and instead of having spending another 20, the last 20 grand on television ads, because the other lot were uh, inundated the tele television, get into every household with a copy of your how to vote card uh, so that people have got it on the kitchen table it's there, this is what we do when we turn up on Saturday, because when they turn up on Saturday, they'll just get inundated with everything. Mm -hmm. There'll be placards and paraphernalia everywhere and abuse and whatever. Uh, get it into the kitchen tables, whether you've got a mail out to do that, whether your 2,000 supporters are going to blanket the place in terms of, uh, or whether you do both. But just keep getting that how to vote card uh, out there. This, in that last week, it is absolutely critical because a lot of people don't engage until those last few days. And yeah. uh, if you're running out of steam and there's this avalanche coming out of light, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's what they'll see and respond to. Yeah. And enthusiasm, of course, you've got to be.
There's some great advice there. And uh, to all the volunteers who are watching this, I say thank you very much for your involvement in our campaign and that multiplier effect that Tony's talking about is one of the things that we've been talking about a lot. So talk to your friends, talk to your neighbours, talk to your colleagues, talk to your acquaintances and ask them to talk to people because really it's guerrilla marketing to some degree, getting the message out and the awareness out. Tony, I wanted to ask you, just to sort of before we close this out, why you think this independent movement has exploded so much of late ahead of this forthcoming election? Well, I, I think the current government is a bad one. I don't, I, there's, there's too many lies, there's too many rorts, there's too much going on uh, that shouldn't be and the accountability processes in this current government are yeah, the, the worst I've seen. I, I thought the Abbott uh, government had some real issues, but, but uh, this one in terms of accountability. So in, in my view, if we want to have a better parliament, we've got to start putting people into it that actually care about the, the parliamentary processes and how we expend our money in terms of the various electorates. Yeah, we, we need some sort of uh, independent anti-corruption uh, commission that really examine a lot of the uh, past and future engagements that the governments, members of parliament, independents, uh, may well get involved in. I th so I, th I think there's a number of issues. The, the integrity is right up there. Uh, climate change, I think people are sick of, of climate change having been politicised. The two very stupid things that Tony Abbott did, in my view, in terms of creating a division in the Australian community uh, were climate change and uh, the National Broadband Network. Uh, there's plenty of things where Labor and Liberal can play their game. You know, you do this and you do that, they can con construct the tennis court that way, but independents don't have to go there. You can avoid all that. You don't have to waste your time on it. You're, the guy who's running against you, he'll spend most of his time trying to develop political traps rather than developing policy. And uh, so you can go straight to the work. And uh, I think people are, are wanting their politics done differently. And I think what I've seen in terms of a lot of the candidates, and I don't know them personally, but, but just on what I know of them uh, reputationally and, and, and what they're saying is that they do want it done differently. It can be done differently. The, the word party is not mentioned in our constitution. The founding fathers didn't put it there. What they put there was representatives to go into a house of representatives. And when they get there after an election, they sit down and try and uh, work out the formulation of policy and form a government. So when people say, oh, it's either got to be Labor or Liberal, you can't have anything else. That's a nonsense. I don't think I'd look around the world to see that there are you know, a number of arrangements in place that, that work quite effectively in other countries. And in fact, they work more effectively uh, than this two party uh, thing that we uh, tend to cling on to. So uh, I, I think this group of independents, and I, I hope some of them do get elected, but I think they're standing as, as caring individuals, not only about the, the, current, the current circumstances that this nation's in, but more, more importantly, in my view, about what the nation's going to look like in 100 years. And that's important. And we haven't got enough people standing up for that now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just finally, you're involved with Climate 200, which is 
supporting my campaign, among others. Um, but I do want to make clear, though, that the majority of our campaign funding right now is coming from the community. Climate 200 is offering some financial support. Why are you involved with Climate 200 and what role do you think that organisation has to play in this? Well, I think my main reason for being involved is that Simon Holmes Court bothered to ask me. Uh, <laughs> and I've, I've, I've known Simon, not well, but, but I've known him from by reputation. He's been one of those people out there for, for decades now in terms of renewable energy and some of those uh, some of those issues. Climate change is probably the big issue that we're going to have to deal with politically uh, into the future. You know, the, the virus is bad at the moment, but climate change. And I'm a farmer, so I've got a vested interest in what happens with climate change, but, but so should we all. And uh, I saw Simon Holmes Accord uh, working away, believing away, and many others were as well. And I thought, well, if I can help him, and it helps raise some funds for decent caring individuals, well, why not? And uh, uh, I know he's there for the right reasons. I have absolutely no doubt about that. So when people say, as I've heard a few people say, this is some sort of international terrorist group or something funneling money into Australia, people know that uh, all that stuff uh, is ridiculous. And uh, I, I wish him well. I thank him for taking the time to, uh, to get involved. He's there, he's there for the future rather than uh, what's happened in the past. Tony Windsor, it's really terrific to talk to you. Some really great insight there. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us on our podcast. Oh, thanks, Ali, and the very best of luck. I think we might see you in Canberra. I hope we do. I hope we do. That's the plan. That's the plan. So thank you very much for joining us for Find Your Voice for this week. And please do join Team Zoe if you're interested or just go onto the website and have a look around. Uh, and you can sign up for a newsletter, keep tabs on what we're doing, or join our multiplier uh, effort, as Tony suggests. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.